Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. I'm Erlon Woods. I'm Nigel Poor. We're the hosts and creators of Ear Hustle from PRX's Radiotopia. Ear Hustle is a show about life inside prison, but it's not your typical prison podcast. In this next season, we've got stories about the objects people keep inside their prison cells. About residents in a women's prison who say they want to stay there. And the most beautiful prison garden. Erlon, I will never forget it. Ear Hustle. Stories about life on the inside told by those who live it. Find Ear Hustle wherever you get your podcasts. From WABE in Atlanta, welcome to this Thursday edition of Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. Coming up on today's program, the Biden administration continues to push for withdrawal from from Afghanistan by the end of the month. Now, I'll speak with Atlanta-based veteran. Captain Dan Pershinsky, who served in the region, and he says it's time for America to accept reality. Also, Valdosta State University launches Georgia's first all-online degree program. It includes everything from criminal justice to elementary education. All that's just ahead, but first this news. The ACLU of Georgia and some state lawmakers say there's still a lack of transparency in the state's Republican-led redistricting process. Georgia lawmakers, of course, are redrawing the state's voting districts after, of course, the 2020 U.S. Census data was released earlier this month. Now, the data revealed Georgia's white population is shrinking and black residents make up Georgia's second largest demographic group, followed by Latinos. State Democratic Senator Tanya Anderson is on the redistricting committee. You know why? We're at this university and it's split into five districts. Why? We're in a certain city and it's five representatives when it should really probably should only be three. So that is the thin line between don't split our districts up and keep people out. The maps drawn by the GOP majority will impact Georgians voting districts for the next decade. In other news, employees of Atlanta-based Delta Airlines will soon face some pretty stiff penalties if they choose not to get the COVID-19 vaccine. Now, the airlines announced Wednesday that starting September 12th, unvaccinated employees on the company's health plan will be charged an additional $200 per month. Delta CEO Ed Bastian says the amount is necessary to cover hospitalizations for coronavirus, which cost the airline $40,000 on average. That's according to them. Unvaccinated Delta employees will also be subjected to weekly testing requirements required to wear a mask indoors and ineligible for pay protection. Bastion went on to say while 70 percent of employees are vaccinated, the aggressiveness of the Delta variant means the company needs to get as close to 100 percent as possible. And finally, Fulton County is expanding the amount of money available to tenants who are behind on rent. Now, previously, it would only pay six months of rent and utilities up to $9,000. Well, now County Commission Chair Rob Pitt says the county is lifting the cap. That means tenants can receive up to 18 months of help, no matter the amount. Today's decision to remove the cap and expand the eligible months means that we are helping even those who have fallen the furthest behind and need the most relief. Fulton's federal assistance is available to residents outside the city of Atlanta. The city has its own funding program. DeKalb also recently 
lifted its cap on rental assistance payments. The county will now pay past due rent for up to 12 months. This is Closer Look. Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. And you're tuned to 90.1 WABE. This is Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. As mentioned earlier, an explosion today in Cabo outside the airport. And within the hour at this time, another explosion has been confirmed by the Pentagon. That one at a hotel near the airport. So far, we know that there have been six fatalities near the airport and more than 50 injuries have been reported. At the time of this broadcast, it's not clear if any of the dead are U.S. citizens. And just yesterday... President Joe Biden talked about safety and concerns of attacks around the airport. The longer we stay, starting with the acute and growing risk of an attack by a terrorist group known as ISIS-K, an ISIS affiliate in Afghanistan, which is a sworn enemy of the Taliban as well. Every day we're on the ground is another day we know that ISIS-K is seeking to target the airport and attack both U.S. and allied forces and innocent civilians. At this time, it is not confirmed actually who's responsible for today's explosions. Now, according to the White House, 1,500 Americans, as well as thousands of Afghans who helped the U.S. during the war, still remain. And President Biden is adamant about sticking to the August 31st withdrawal date. While criticism of the Biden administration's overall plan is coming from both Democrats and Republicans, on Tuesday, a bipartisan group of lawmakers called on Biden to extend the deadline for withdrawal. Among them was Democratic Representative Jason Crow of Colorado. Now, he also serves on the Armed Services Committee, and he also served in Afghanistan and Iraq. We must do everything necessary, regardless of the deadline at the end of the month. We must extend that and get the mission done. The deadline is when the mission is accomplished and we bring our people home. Full stop. Just short of exactly two decades, it was called Operation Enduring Freedom. It began October 7, 2001. Then President George W. Bush announced that airstrikes targeting al-Qaeda and the Taliban had begun in Afghanistan. Now, this action was in response to the September 11th attacks. Good afternoon. On my orders, the United States military has begun strikes against al-Qaeda terrorist training camps and military installations of the Taliban regime in Afghanistan. These carefully targeted actions are designed to disrupt the use of Afghanistan as a terrorist base of operations and to attack the military capability of the Taliban regime. President George W. Bush there back on October 7th, 2001. Now, due to how quickly the Taliban seized power in Afghanistan leads to many questions. 
And we're going to talk about all that with Captain Dan Bershinsky. He's an, Afga- he's an Afghanistan war veteran and Atlanta small business owner. He actually appeared on the program back in November of last year. Captain Bershinsky, thank you so much for taking the time again. And as always, as we say, thank you for your service. Thank you, Rose. Thanks for having me here. I appreciate it. Before we talk about your time in Afghanistan, let's begin by going back to 9-11, because at the time you were a senior in high school, correct? Correct. I was a senior at McIntosh High School in Peachtree City. And the events of that day, you take it from here and tell our listeners what happened after that. Uh, the events of that day were were shocking, to say the least. I think like all Americans, uh, once we heard news of what was going on, things at school pretty much shut down. I remember distinctly, you know, I think we still kept going to our various classes, but all we would do in class was, you know, talk with the teachers or talk amongst ourselves. I think some teachers were able to bring televisions into the classroom back in the day when TVs rolled around on carts in schools. Um, what it meant for me personally was I had already uh, set my sights on uh, attending college with my first choice being West Point um, and then serving afterwards as an army officer. So um, I wouldn't say that it necessarily motivated me or changed my motivations one way or the other to serve, but it Mm -hmm. it brought a new reality to the aspect of my service. Of course, I did not expect that, you know, four to five years Mm -hmm. after I was set to graduate college that I would be going to participate in this war. I I mean, I didn't expect that it would be ongoing by then. Mm -hmm. When were you first deployed to Afghanistan? I went to Afghanistan in 2009, eight years after 9-11. What region were you mostly in, Captain? I was in the Kandahar province in the Argandab district, basically the uh, traditional home of the Taliban, more or less. You were a Army infantry infantry pl- platoon leader, correct? Correct. Yep, I was leading a, a platoon of about thirty-five soldiers. What was? It? Can you talk about a t- if there was a typical day for you all? What was that like? Yeah. Well. Um, you know, at the beginning of the deployment, which is when I served, um, our typical day really was figuring out what our area of operations looked like, what the enemy's tactics and tempo was, who the influential people in our territory were, and where we could and, and could not go. Um, so typically, you know, wake up in the morning, uh, execute a foot patrol or a vehicle mounted patrol that we had planned the day prior, um, sometimes partnered with Afghan soldiers, sometimes on our own. Um, Some missions occurred at night, um, but mostly it was walking around Afghanistan and getting a lay of the land, more or less. How important was it to have, obviously, the part, not only the partnership with the Afghans in terms of the military, but just in citizens, too? and getting to know them and having them maybe trust you all, or maybe they didn't tell me. Uh, It was, it was interesting. Um, I recently published uh, an op-ed in the Washington post Mm -hmm. that I detail two really seminal events from my time in Afghanistan. And the first one was my, my very first mission. We were leaving our, our large uh, battalion size base and moving out to a smaller company size base. And I stopped to speak with a local Afghan shopkeeper at at some point during our uh, road march. And that shopkeeper was very direct. He said, Lieutenant, I met a Lieutenant just like you 12 months prior. 
you will leave in 12 months. I will meet your American lieutenant replacement then. I do not like the Taliban, but they live here. You will leave. Eventually, America will leave, and the Taliban will still be here. You will not outlast them, essentially, is what he was saying. Um, so my interactions with the Afghan people, uh, it, it was difficult. The, the people that I interacted with could range from you know, happy and thankful to largely indifferent, I would say was the most common reaction and a little bit of outward hostility. Um, they had had Americans and other coalition soldiers driving through their villages, walking across their fields, you know, more or less for eight years by the time I got there. Um, they also did not trust their own government. I would talk with locals and say, I'm here to protect you from the Taliban so that you can support the rightful Afghan government. And they would turn to me and they would say, through an interpreter, of course, I don't care about the Afghan government because they're corrupt. They don't do anything for me. And these people had no roads. They had no electricity. They had no medical facilities. Everything that we take for granted that our government provides for us, they had none of it. So mm -hmm. it just became obvious that the people were stuck between a rock and a hard place in, in between the Taliban and a government that they did not trust for good reason. Did you and your fellow soldiers ever talk about, why are we here? What are we doing? Yeah, we did. You know, I think certainly among my peers, the other lieutenants and the captains I was close with, we, we could have those conversations behind closed doors. Out with the soldiers while doing the job, the bottom line was, you know, we're here to protect each other, mm -hmm. the men to, to your left and to your right. And, and that's all we cared about in the moment, um, you know. Soldiers have opinions uh, mm -hmm. as they should, uh, but our job was to, you know, carry out all lawful ethical orders as effectively as we could. Um, so, you know, while soldiers may have had opinions about it, when you're there trying to stay alive in the middle of a combat zone, it, it's not worth the mental trouble to really think about the national security ramifications of it all. Being in the combat zone, Captain, did you and your fellow soldiers, you all were in battles? Yeah, uh, very first mission, uh, the one I previously described. Um, at, uh, can't believe, can't remember if it was before or after the conversation with the shopkeeper. I believe it was after. But um, I watched three of our engineer vehicles who were driving down the road, intentionally trying to sweep it for IEDs. I watched these specialized engineers and their vehicles unintentionally trigger a succession of three IEDs. Um, we had to evacuate one of the drivers who was wounded from that. Um, we then walked into town to ask questions and immediately ran headfirst into a near ambush. So, yeah, we were fighting right away. Um, did you suffer any casualties within your platoon, Captain? I did not personally until August 18th, 2009, after being there for about a month and a half. I was leading my platoon on a patrol that morning. We were supposed to go... Uh, perform reconnaissance on polling sites for, for an upcoming national election. And we were supposed to partner with our Afghan counterparts. But that morning I woke up and while walking across the base, I realized that the Afghan soldiers I was supposed to partner with had fled the base overnight. They did not want to stay in the area uh, in the days leading up to the national election of 2009 because they did not want to have to defend polling sites from the Taliban. So. Instead, that day, I led my platoon um, more or less on a pointless mission into the orchards just to see what was out there. Um, and we ended up having two soldiers killed, and I got my legs blown off. If you just joined us, I'm in conversation 
with Captain Dan Brzezinski. He's an Af- Afghanistan war veteran, now an Atlanta small business owner. And he's offering reflection on the nearly two decades of U.S. military action and war in Afghanistan. That day that you just described, Captain Brzezinski, I imagine it's just, it's forever etched in your mind. You can't forget it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, That said, I've both kind of forgotten it Mm -hmm. and lived it over and over again for, you know, the last 12 years that it's been since it occurred. And the reason I say I've forgotten it is because America, it seems to me as a nation, has forgotten this war for pretty much the entire 20 years that it's gone on. Um, It really hasn't been until last week and this week Mm -hmm. that my country started paying attention to my war. In that op-ed in the Washington Post, you also wrote, I'm going to quote you here, I am angry that my fellow soldiers gave lives and limbs for an effort that is clearly ending in defeat, of course, but I am even angrier that our nation's leaders ignored reality and insisted for two decades that the war was headed in the right direction. Nearly a Nearly a score of different generals in change in charge of the war effort and three presidential administrations chose to extend an unstainable status quo rather than acknowledge hard truths. None of them faced any consequences. In those three administrations, within those three administrations that you mentioned there, were you ever hopeful that perhaps maybe we would start the withdrawal process even earlier than now in 2021? Was there any hope maybe uh, in in the Obama administration or Trump's I was always hopeful. I was always hopeful, um, but I was never optimistic, I guess. Um, I served in Afghanistan in 2009, as I mentioned, eight years after 9-11, eight years after we first invaded, destroyed al-Qaeda, destroyed their capabilities to conduct another international terrorist act. And... I was there when we had about 70,000 soldiers, American soldiers in the country. I then watched several months later as President Obama gave a speech from the campus at West Point where I went to college. And he announced that under advisement from his generals, we were going to send an additional 40,000 American soldiers to Afghanistan. So by 2010, we had over 100,000 American soldiers in Afghanistan. Mm -hmm. So... To answer your question, yes, I was always hopeful. Was I ever expecting or, or, or optimistic or confident that the war would be ended? No, it was obvious that no presidential administration wanted to be left holding the bag. It was obvious that no general wanted to acknowledge, at least publicly, that this war was in vain and that it was unwinnable. Um, until the Biden administration came along. And because of reporting I had read about Biden and because of a very personal interaction I had with him one night at the rehab facility at Walter Reed, I actually was optimistic that he would bring this endless war to its inevitable conclusion. Um, And I'm happy that he's doing it now, as messy as it is. As messy as it is. Let's talk about that. Because obviously the criticism is that Whatever the plan was, it's not working in a sense because there is a deadline and an agreement that's been made with the Taliban. 
And will these 1,500, not just the 1,500 remaining Americans, Captain, but also the thousands of Afghans that were right there in support, right beside you, some of your fellow soldiers, who were promised that they would be they would be relocated somewhere else or they would be helped. But now we're down to, what, four days from now? Can you understand that criticism? Yeah, the criticism is absolutely fair. There's a lot to criticize in this 20-year-long war. I mean, if we've been fighting this war for 20 years, that means we've had 20 years to at least put a plan together for when, when the day comes that we end it, how are we going to do that? I don't know if there was a plan or was not a plan, but if the, mili- if the military can do anything right, we can make a heck of a plan, um, and we should have had one. That said, we also have uh, a saying in the military that a plan never survives first contact with the enemy and that the enemy has a vote. So you put your plan together, you plan your mission, but you know you're going to adapt as soon as triggers start getting pulled. The plan goes out the window. So I think the administration is adapting now. Uh, I think they're doing a relatively good job given the actual circumstances on the ground. I, I, I wish Americans would acknowledge more of the facts, which are we are operating in a foreign country 7,000 miles away from us where their own government, the one we supported, fled, is no longer working. Their military laid down their arms and the enemy that we fought for 20 years walked uncontested into the city and they've surrounded the airport and they are allowing us to back out as messy as it is. Um, Through your lens, Captain, does the, the U.S. need to make sure those Afghans that, again, were there, that they too are also helped in, in fleeing this region? Do, or do you believe that the Taliban, when they do you believe the Taliban when they say we're going to work, we need these people, we're going to work with them, so that they will not I be believe, in any danger if they stay? You believe that? No, of course, of course, I don't believe that. The the Afghan nationals who worked with us are in tremendous danger. Um, we do owe them a lot. That said, we have also given them a lot. 20 years of effort, almost 2,500 American lives, another 1,000 coalition lives, trillions of dollars. We built schools. We built roads. We built medical facilities. We brought NGOs and foreign aid in. We brought diplomats. We built embassies. We tried to cultivate new industries. We gave an entire generation of Afghan people 20 years of freedoms and human rights that they had never before experienced. I am hopeful that that 20 years will influence the Taliban, that the people remaining in Afghanistan will stand up for their rights. And I am also hopeful that the international community, which all of a sudden is very focused on Afghanistan, Mm -hmm. will keep that focus up and that the combined influence of an Afghan population that has experienced the last 20 years, plus international attention, can actually exact some influence on the Taliban. Do I trust them? Of course not. Mm-hmm. Um, do we owe the, the people who worked shoulder to shoulder with our forces? Of course we do. That said, I don't know where you draw the line. You can't evacuate the entire country. 
Um, I'm glad I'm not in charge and I don't have to make the incredibly difficult human to human decision of you get to come, you have to stay. But I will say this, Rose, Mm -hmm. America gave a lot. I love the Afghan people and I wish them well. I personally am not willing to sacrifice any more American soldiers in a country 7,000 miles away that is ruled by people who who are the, the Taliban are the most influential political organization in that country. And I don't want to see any more American soldiers killed. I think the president's absolutely right when he asked the country, how many more of our sons and daughters do you want me to send over there? You mentioned, because it was, and you called it a pointless, you refer to it as pointless, but that incident in which you tragically lost both your legs, but you also weren't backed up by the Afghan forces that you were expecting, correct? I want to make sure we have a listener that wants to make sure that you they're understanding that story. Is that correct? You all were supposed to have support and be with Afghan military personnel, is that true? Correct. We were supposed to be doing a different mission that day, mm-hmm. but the Afghan uh, soldiers who were supposed to partner with us fled um, and refused to come back to our base for several days until the national elections were over. Did that happen a lot where they would just... Uh, it only happened that once in my experience because mm-hmm. later that day I got blown up and my fight was over. And then I spent the next four years doing mm-hmm. taxpayer-funded rehabilitation at Walter Reed. Um, but did it happen a, a lot? Yes. I will also say some Afghan soldiers fought incredibly bravely. The Afghan security forces lost over 60 or 70,000 soldiers themselves. Okay. And I, I don't mean to dismiss that, mm-hmm. but time and time again, during our 20 year history, we were hobbled by an Afghan, not just an Afghan military, but an Afghan government an Afghan society that was nowhere near capable of operating at the level that we were trying to bring it up to. We had set impossible goals and impossible tasks. It's a well-known fact that on a unit to unit basis within the Afghan military, you would have unit commanders reporting that they had a thousand soldiers, for example, ready for duty. Mm -hmm. And you'd go show up and do a face-to-face inspection and there'd be 200 guys there. So there'd be 800, what we call ghost soldiers on the books and the U.S. government was paying them a salary. And then that salary was getting siphoned off along the way by various commanders and government officials or used for bribery. Mm-hmm. And so we had a, you know, we were trying to build a force that was largely illiterate, if you can imagine that, trying to teach them logistics, trying to help them establish their own logistics supply chain when most of them couldn't even read or write. And then just the the corruption was endemic. And so at an individual level, you could have incredibly brave, incredibly honorable Afghan soldiers Mm -hmm. who were just condemned to a futile effort because their chain of command was rotten to the core. Mm. Um, So you can find individual glimmers of hope and goodness in the effort. But this is what I mean when I say it was an unwinnable war. Mm -hmm. At the national scale, what we were trying to achieve was just flat out impossible. And we had a Pentagon and three presidential administrations in a row who refused to acknowledge the truth. And their answer time and time again was more years, more lives, more money. And after 20 years of more, look what it bought us. 
I have a listener who wants to know about the rehab and how you were able, what was your mindset? I'm going to read this. Please ask him what his mindset was in rehabbing those four years. Sure. Uh, you know, my first mindset was I'm incredibly lucky. Despite the severity of my wounds, my brain is fine. I've got both of my hands still. And at the end of the day, I have a great family, great set of friends, a great community, and a great country that will support me. So I knew that whether I could walk again or not, at least I live in a country where we have the Americans with Disabilities Act, I can roll around in a wheelchair and I can work an office job. My second thought was I owe it to my family and to my soldiers to be as independent as possible and to be as happy as possible, to live a happy, productive life. Um, my third thought was I don't want to be miserable for the rest of my life. And what happened to me was not a surprise. It's not like I was hit by a bus while crossing the street. I was a soldier who volunteered to go to a war and I got wounded in that war. I knew it was possible. The big surprise is, is that I didn't die. Because on that same day, just a couple hours earlier, two soldiers nearby to me were killed. And so I owed it to them. I owed it to all of the service members that we've lost. Um, to live the best life that I possibly could. So that was my outlook during rehab. Captain Dan Brzezinski, an Afghanistan war veteran, now an Atlanta small business owner, offered a reflection on the nearly two decades of U.S. military action in Afghanistan. Captain Brzezinski, always a pleasure to have you on the program. Come on back. Thank you, Rose. Closer Look continues now. This is 90.1 WABE. I'm Rose Scott. According to Best College's seventh annual online education trends report, the need and demand for online education is increasing. And data from the report reveals that school administrators think that over the next few years, there will be 83% in terms of a greater need and 78% demand for online courses. Here in Georgia, Valdosta State University is expanding the way students can earn degrees. The Board of Regents of the University System of Georgia recently approved Valdosta State University's new online college for career advancement. Join me now to talk more about all that is Dr. Rodney Carr, the Vice President for Student Success and the Director of the Online College for Career Advancement. Dr. Carr, thanks for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Y'all offering a course in broadcasting and people can come do what I do? I tell you what, I am wide open for suggestions and you're an ace at it. So if we do get it, we're probably not going to have you take it. We're going to have you teach it. That's all right that. with me. I appreciate that. Welcome to the program. Let's begin here because I know classes are underway, but and obviously we're still in the pandemic. But just through your lens, how are y'all doing on campus there at Valdosta? Y'all doing all right? Uh, we're doing well on campus. I think uh, some of the things we heard from our families throughout the summer, they kind of wanted to see about getting back and we're still taking those precautions in our classrooms and, and keeping our students and our faculty and our staff as healthy as we can. We're doing incentives for um, vaccinations and all those kinds of things. So we're, we're doing all those things to try to be as healthy and as safe as we can, but yet try to have some kind of on-campus experience. And obviously with the online college development, we also wanna be able to take advantage of the online 
learning as well. You know, nearly 18 months since we're all dealing with the coronavirus deal and how it's impacting all of our lives. What is your assessment as to how this moment now is really going to change higher education in this nation? I mean, you heard the stats coming in about more people wanting the demand for online education, online courses. But because we're still in this pandemic, you see that higher education is going to change a little bit how we do it. It has been changing some, and I can tell you last March when we all got sent home, uh, my team kind of sat around the table and we said, how do we still stay connected to our students and give them an engagement type experience and take care of them in a time of crisis? Uh, So we developed a plan to be able to do that and got some volunteers to reach out to our students every week. And from the development of that plan, we actually took that very idea and now we've moved it into this online college environment. Uh, So we learned a lot from that process. I do think higher education is changing some. Uh, I'm a non-traditional student, or at least I was. I had to work my way through college. My dad and I started college the same day. And Mm -hmm. so I had a full-time job. I got married. We had children. uh, And trying to get into a classroom at 10 o'clock in the morning on a campus uh, while trying to juggle life that was happening all around me just got very difficult. And so what we wanted to do was develop a way that those students that maybe even they have some college and life started to happen and they stopped, we wanted to develop a program that they can go back to and be welcomed into it and have a pretty good quick pathway to get across that finish line. As we always hear about folks who are going back to school or folks who are, you know, maybe want to take a a complete direction a different direction in terms of a career path this now meets those demands is what you're saying exactly it does and i think for us um the very concentration was about that busy life around that the way that we have designed uh, i know we all think in college and universities all start in august and then they start in january or september in january here um, if you were to apply today you're going to be putting an enrollment course right off the bat. You're going to be in it within 36 to 72 hours. We're going to get you started that quickly. Uh, It's not about, there's a lot of times we don't have a delay. We don't want a delay. We're ready to get going. We're ready to get going now. So we've designed a way to be able to do that. Uh, The courses are in eight weeks. So you can take two classes for eight weeks. You're not overwhelmed Mm -hmm. for a long period of time, but yet you can still take enough courses in a 15, 16 week period to express, well, to get across that finish line even quicker mm-hmm. and kind of, we kind of built an express lane into it for that very reason. Well, let's just, uh, you gave a lot there, but I want to be very clear for our listeners. Let's back up a little bit. So someone listening says, okay, Dr. Carr, I'm ready. Um, I'm going to do, let's say early education, early elementary education. So what do I do now? Take me, walk me through this. They go straight to our website. And if they look at the online college or just if they hit apply now and say that they want to attend the online college, They're going to have somebody reach out to them within the next 36 hours. We're going to put them in an enrollment workshop to help them prepare to be an online learner. And then we're going to get them started in a, they'll have an enrollment coach, then reach out to them and say, here's our process. Here's where your next steps are. And then they're going to help them with that online learning part. A lot of us are a little scared when you try to go back to college, it's going to be hard. It's going to be online. It's going to be different. I don't know what to do. So we've designed a that workshop is designed specifically for that to help you get Mm -hmm. used to where that is all of our courses look exactly the same 
So when they log in and that first template that they see, mm -hmm. all of their courses are going to be lined up just like that. There's not, we took down, we wanted to break down every barrier that would ever stop you from saying, I want to go back to school. I know when I was working all the time, I wanted to get promotions and we all want to make more money and have a nicer life kind of thing. And so to be able to do that, I needed the college education. Mm -hmm. But then again, I couldn't give up my job to go work to do that. So we truly sat down and how do we design this program around that? And how do we make it more affordable than what the other institutions that have large online environments, whatever they're doing? Well, let's talk about that in terms of this being affordable. You all say that tuition for the new college, as you all put it, is among the most affordable in the nation. Uh, yes. So there's 67,000, over 67,000 Georgians that are choosing to attend online colleges outside of the state of Georgia. We've mm -hmm. all seen the commercials for the University of Phoenix. They're over $400 a credit hour. Uh, Southern New Hampshire has some of my favorite commercials out there. They're over, they're about $320 a credit hour. Ours is $299 a credit hour, and we have no fees whatsoever attached on that. You're not even going to pay for a graduation fee. No mm -hmm. fees whatsoever. And we also include all of your course materials inside of that $299 a credit hour, making it even more affordable, and other institutions aren't doing that. So again, Rose, what we wanted to do was take down every single barrier that we could think of that could stop mm -hmm. you. And when we say it's two ninety nine a credit hour, you sign up for X number of credit hours, and you multiply that by two ninety nine. That's the bill you're paying. I want to shift to the the educators in a sense for those who will be working with the online learners here, as you call them. Uh, did you all seek out some specific educators and folks to work here, or is this just part of the regular Valdosta State faculty and staff? It's a combination of both. Mm -hmm. Uh, we have some of those that are out there in the real world environment and they're also teaching. So um, when they're you're taking their class, you're going to say, listen, I got to work every day, too. And so I'm in that process. But some of our very clear experts in their fields are also teaching in this environment to make sure that we're getting the right information in the right way to to our students. We want them when they graduate from here and go to work somewhere. We want that employer to say, man, they are exactly what I needed and ready to go when they hit the field. If you're just joining us, I'm in conversation with Dr. Rodney Carr, the Vice President for Student Success and the Director of the Online College for Career Advancement at Valdosta State University. And we're talking about the new online college. Okay, well, let's talk about then the challenges. You know, I'm, I'm an online learner and you know, I'm having little challenges here. So can you all, and I know, look, it, professors, <laughs> educators are all busy, but are you telling me also that I may have a little bit uh, better chance of working with my instructor or, or my educator if I get stuck somewhere or I need some one-on-one? -on -one? Is this a little bit easier for me or am I going to be out there wavering, Dr. Carr? <laughs> we don't like to let anybody waver, and that's a great way to ask the question. So I think we've all been there where you feel a little stuck, especially in an online environment. You're mm -hmm. almost Part of it is you're engaging with the curriculum yourself. Uh, that's also why we give you a enrollment coach that's on there so if you happen to get stuck you reach out to that person and say listen i'm just i'm stuck right here and i don't know what to go to this person's like the concierge i know a guy is what this person does and so they kind of direct you to well we have tutoring available we have this available we have that avail available let me show you how to get in touch with the instructor where you can have some one-on-one -on -one time inside of that as well and these instructors also, they sign a little bit different contract with us where mm -hmm. they have to, we ask them to respond to all students within 24 hours when they send them an email. 
which is a little different than what some of the higher education areas are. We want them to respond very quickly and be engaging to the students. That's my next question. Do you all model this after any other university or did you really work hard at coming up with a unique and comprehensive model that you all felt would be geared toward each individual online learner here that so it would be unique for them? So we had a little bit of both, I guess, is how I'd have to answer that. Um, we did a lot of research with the national institutions that are very good at, at doing online colleges. And so we found that some of them were saying, you know, this is great because they're responding back to me by email within 24 hours, like, all right, so that's important. So we're going to, we're going to grab onto that. And then the enrollment coach part is really a part that we implemented into it. Some of them will do it on the admission side to get you in, but then they just kind of leave you alone. We wanted to carry that through because we saw it as such a great example of when we all went home and went online in the pandemic how our faculty interacted with them. And so I really wanted to be able to implement that and take this into there. So it is one of those where we sat around the table to dream up of all the barriers that we could think of. Mm -hmm. And then how do we knock those down? Are other institutions doing it? Some of those that I've even mentioned earlier are doing parts of this. Uh, I don't know of any off the top of my head that are doing it exactly like we're doing. And we should note if folks didn't catch this, that listen, you don't have to start when the traditional semester semester start right they can enroll right. in Today. the new well, yeah <laughs> um any numbers yet in terms of how many folks are, are starting to take advantage of this and and you know signing up so this is um in fact we just had a meeting earlier today about this very thing where we went through some numbers so our business plan was very conservative and we, we thought about about we have eight programs so 10 new students into each program so 80 students involved in these programs would be a great first year at the end of the academic year to have 80 in there um, rose i'm glad to tell you as of today there's 189 students that are enrolled in these programs and so we're well ahead of our business plan and, um, and we have them more and more coming in every day and so truly it's you apply now and within the next two to three days, you're you're sitting in that enrollment course and you're being interacted with somebody from the university. So you are happy if you could get 80, but now you're at 189? Yes. What does that and say I'm, to you, I'll, Dr. Carr? Uh, well, it also says that we're there's a need that is out there. And truly, if over 67,000 Georgians are going somewhere else to do it, what is it that we weren't doing to, to be able to meet that need? And so we truly just wanted to design that. We know that that need is out there and we're getting a lot of feedback from our students. And the good part about that is we're listening and we're taking that feedback and we're, we have meetings every week right now, adjusting how we're doing it, what we're doing. And, and we know that the programs are going to be successful. Uh, Valdosta State University is just a unique place. Uh, we're a university that connects very deeply and engages our students very deeply. And so we're, building on that culture and just taking that culture into an online environment. Well, you mentioned feedback. What, what have you heard so far? Uh, to, I think this is one of my favorite stories of, of all of them. Uh, it's a mom who also just became a grandmother hmm. who works full time and has a lot of family responsibilities to take care of. She called, she came in and was absolutely in tears running down both sides of her face saying, I've waited so long to finish my degree. This is going to be able to help me to do it in a way that I can afford to do it. And in a time frame that I can do it. 
and she's been scared to go back to school for years mm -hmm. because it just wasn't for me. It's going to be too hard. And she said, everybody's been so helpful every step of the way. So that's a lot of the feedback that we're getting uh, currently. Uh, we have students that have, I think the last number that I saw was we had a student that first matriculated in the college in 1972 that wow. is coming back to college. I was, to in, I was in diapers. Well, <laughs> probably. <laughs> Maybe. I, I was not. I may have been just out of diapers, but truly <laughs> matriculated their first time in college in 1972 and they're coming back to finish. That's great. And so I, it is. It's just um it's an honor and a privilege to be a part of it every day to see that. Um, we have a great saying around here about Austin State University. We're the lucky ones that get to work in a job that we change people's lives every day. And it's just an amazing thing to be able to be a part of. I have a listener who wants to know about financial aid. Y'all offer, is it the, the typical traditional financial aid pathway? I'm assuming that folk yeah. that she wants to know that folks can, can use to Pay for these yes, grants. you can use HOPE grant, you can use federal financial aid uh, through FAFSA and student loans and all those kinds of things. All of that applies to that. And so our financial aid office is working diligently with everybody to do that. And so it's um, the semesters are now obviously divided into half and people are starting at different times. So there's a lot of times we're working very quickly to do transcripts and we look at transcripts and get those courses applied quickly and start trying to process financial aid as quick as we can and get those students going and moving and help them in any way that we possibly can, either through federal grants or scholarships or whatever we can to help our students move forward. As we wrap up, Dr. Carr, where do you think this program is going to be, say, oh, I would say five years, but I'm going to shorten that, maybe two years from now. Where do you think this program is going to be? Uh, I truly hope that we're um, somewhere in the ballpark of 2,000 students in, in a couple of years. I truly, it's a very aggressive goal, but I don't say that just because of the number of the students. I look at it more of our job as a regional comprehensive university is to educate the folks that we are committed to educating. And so we want to be able to do that, to have a more educated region, a more educated state in the Southeast and country. And that's our goal is to be able to do that. If we have 9,000, it's going to be great. If we have 900, it's going to be great. And we're going to continue to pursue that goal and to help our students the best way that we can to be able to finish their education. Y'all going to have to um, bolster the IT department, won't you? <laughs> we, we had that very discussion yesterday, as a matter of fact. Rosemary. See, I should be a college They're administrator. <laughs> it's a... Uh, well, and I think that as as it grows, obviously you have to make shifts and a change changes and adjustments. But there's mm -hmm. a few core values that we're not willing to step away from, and that student being the center and that student finishing their education is truly at the center of every decision that we make. And that's one core value that we will not compromise on. All right, Dr. Rodney Carr, the Vice President for Student Success and the Director of the Online College for Career Advancement at Valdosta State University. Thank you so much for taking the time. Before I let you give your final goodbye, what's that website again? It is baldosta.edu. All right. Thank you so much, Dr. Carr. I really appreciate it. Thank you for what you all are going to be able to offer so many people. Well, thank you for having us. It was a pleasure.
And that's it for this edition of Closer Look. A reminder to let us know your thoughts on today's program, on what you heard. Send me an email, rose at wabe.org. And as always, if you missed any of today's program, it's online. It really is at wabe.org slash Closer Look. And of course, you can listen to Closer Look weeknights at 7 p.m. as well as in our podcast. So subscribe to Closer Look or any of other our great podcasts wherever you like because it's going to be there and it's free. Stay tuned to 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The Gold Dome Scramble podcast is now plugged in, a WABE politics podcast. New name, same on-the-ground reporting from us, WABE politics reporters Sam Greenglass and Raul Bally. We'll cover local, state, and national politics as we talk to politicians and voters to break down each week's biggest headlines. New episodes drop on Fridays. Listen and subscribe at WABE.org or your favorite podcast platform. WABE.